Good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and uh, to our uh, morning activity, which precedes Grand Rounds, uh, which is our uh, Eating Healthy initiatives. Um, as many of you know, uh, the, uh, the challenge out, uh, outside is to figure out uh, how many calories were on this uh, plate. Um, this plate had 660 calories. This plate, the question was how many calories would be displayed and how, how much food was there on this plate. Let's go over the slides. Now the answer was. 280 calories were on this plate as opposed to 600 calories on this plate, which is larger than granola. So if you eat a big cup of granola, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, and this represents about a cup, cup and a half of fruit. Uh, so your knowledge now of healthy choosing has been improved. The next, the next week, uh, the, the, the meeting will be about vegetables next morning, next, uh, next uh, Grand Rounds pre-event. Uh, and the winner of today's exciting contest is Jonathan Jones from the section of <laughs> Jonathan uh, wins some of that granola. <laughs> <laughs> Choices went from a, a, a low of about 240 to a high of 840 calories. So uh, some of you need to really refine your, your estimates. So next week, vegetables. And uh, let's, let's move on now to uh, uh, hopefully a not related issue, but maybe it, it is, uh, fibromyalgia, um, to introduce our speaker, uh, John Goldenberg uh, from Newton Wellesley uh, will be our section chief in rheumatology, Nicole Orzakowski. Nicole? Good morning. Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. And it's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Don Goldenberg, chief of rheumatology at Newton Wellesley uh, Hospital and director of their arthritis and fibromyalgia center. He's also a professor of medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Goldenberg uh, received his medical school training at the University of Wisconsin and completed residency at uh, Montfiore Hospital in New York. He completed his rheumatology fellowship at Boston University um, and then went on to become chief of rheumatology at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington, where he spent a couple of years and then came back to Boston University, uh, rising to the rank of professor of medicine. He uh, served as chief of the rheumatology of rheumatology and director of the arthritis fibromyalgia center at Newton Wellesley since 1988. Dr. Goldenberg is nationally and internationally known um, and recognized for his work in fibromyalgia. He has more than 150 peer-reviewed publications to date, uh, numerous abstracts, 33 book chapters, and three books. He's the up-to-date section editor for fibromyalgia. He's an expert spokesperson on fibromyalgia for the Arthritis Foundation, and he became a master of the American College of Rheumatology in 2009, 
one of the highest honors bestowed by the college on its members who have made outstanding contributions to the field of rheumatology. So Dr. Goldenberg, thank you for visiting us today and welcome to Medicine Go On. Thank you, Nicole. So, absolute pleasure to be here. Not too long of a ride either. Um, so, um, the objectives basically are um, um, to really use fibromyalgia as a model to look at chronic centralized pain. Uh, I'll talk to you what that means in a second. And then we'll, we'll talk more specifically about both the diagnosis and management of this condition. But I also want to use it really as a broad or area of other chronic pain disorders. My disclosure is up and down here. I am a, on the advisory council for Pfizer. So uh, this is a huge problem, chronic pain. Um, it's the uh, most common presenting medical symptom for all of you primary care physicians. Uh, and uh, two-thirds of uh, visits of chronic pain in primary care are actually related to musculoskeletal pain. Uh, that includes musculoskeletal type headaches. Um, it costs more than cancer, heart disease put together in the United States, $600 billion per year. And one of the things that I want to uh, go over with you, I hope you believe, is most chronic pain conditions are not structural. And this is something that may be uh, different than you've heard, particularly if you're uh, a young physician. There's about three or 4,000 pain specialists in the United States who are way underrepresented. And pain specialists, I hope I don't offend anybody, are procedure-oriented. And most of them are not interested in dealing with the types of people we're going to talk about. So who does the burden fall on? It falls on primary care. I know why these slides are half up and half down. But, um, <laughs> um, so um, basically, there's uh, people talk about sort of four types of uh, uh, chronic pain. The easiest for us all to understand is nociceptive pain. Uh, it's just like we think. We touch a hot stove, your finger withdraws. It's very physiologically appropriate. Um, what I deal with in inflammatory pain, gout or rheumatoid arthritis, um, again, there's localized inflammation, neuropathic pain like uh, zoster, and fibromyalgia and many of the conditions that we uh, now call centralized pain, basically the problem is there's no obvious peripheral stimulus. So it, it doesn't make sense when you talk to people or other doctors, we all think about peripheral pain as a source, and there's no peripheral stimulus here that you can really pinpoint to. Um, so again, reading from the bottom up on top, uh, our, 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 our current paradigms for diagnosing and treating chronic pain, I think, are very antiquated. And one thing uh, that doesn't make sense, but this is very true, there's not a single chronic pain state where the degree of inflammation in the periphery uh, correlates well with the level of pain. And again, that's not kind of what you've heard growing up. 
yet our diagnostic paradigms and terms we use uh, imply otherwise. And then usually what we think, or sort of what I was thought, taught 30 years ago, well, if there's this mismatch, this disparity between the peripheral and the degree of pain, it's all psychological. The person's uh, uh, either a wimp or imagining things, or she's depressed or anxious. Notice she. Um, so here's a case. Uh, uh, we'll start you out. This is somebody that I see at, at least a number of times a week. So a 40-year-old, 45-year-old female. Uh, she's a, a mother of two young children. She's worked as a paralegal. I saw her last week. And she complained of three years of persistent widespread pain. I heard all over. Um, she's also exhausted, doesn't sleep well, feels like a truck ran her over when she gets up. She's very irritable, but she denied any major depression. Has not seen a psychiatrist. She also has a long-standing history of chronic headaches. They were migraine when she was younger. Now they sound muscular. A lot of bowel and bladder irritability. She had a back surgery about 10 years earlier, not sure if it really helped. And her exam really was quite unremarkable. Uh, no joint swelling, no deformities, no weakness, no uh, uh, focal neurologic abnormality, but she was sensitive to palpation over muscles and tendons. So a classic sort of fibromyalgia presentation. Again, when I talk to medical students, I always use this uh, kind of my, my own feeling about percentages. So if you have a person with chronic pain, so six months, a year of chronic pain, I like to divide it into <laughs> articular or non-articular. And articular pain, only about 10% of the time is inflammatory. So the bread and butter for rheumatologists is rheumatoid arthritis and related condition. A more common is osteoarthritis, uh, which probably makes about 40% of it. And then 50% of people with chronic pain, it's non-articular. And sometimes it's neuropathic, whatever that word means. Often it's so-called functional. People talk about functional somatic syndrome. And again, that's where fibromyalgia occurs. That is where most low back pain occurs. Despite us looking always for you know, their imaging studies, et cetera, most people, it's not structural. So. Chronic pain syndromes. Uh, fibromyalgia is basically, as far as I'm concerned, the prototype for a fundamentally different type of pain syndrome. And I think we, I've learned a lot from fibromyalgia as it relates to these other conditions where the pain is not due to damage or inflammation. And it's also frequently accompanied by a variety of other somatic complaints. And that's what drives us crazy, right? It's not just pain, it's all these other symptoms that we don't understand, which makes us more uh, thought-provoking that it's a psychiatric condition. And there's a lot of different labels that have been applied for these individuals. The trouble is there's no agreed-upon en encompassing term. And this is where really the rub is. No medical specialty has accepted ownership of these conditions. Um, fibromyalgia is not a musculoskeletal disorder. So why are rheumatologists taking care of it? Sounds crazy, right? Nicole's smiling because we don't want to take care of fibromyalgia any more than you do. Um, <laughs> but uh, nobody has ownership of these conditions. And who's left in the lurch, of course, the patients. Um, this is uh, from uh, Dan Clough's uh, uh, article. There's two of them recently. One was in JAMA a few months ago on the clinical characteristics of central pain. 
So central pain, what to think about? Pain in many different regions. Um, yeah, that might. No, it doesn't work. Well. I suppose I could keep it with the slides on the left. Okay, good, good try. <laughs> um, so a higher personal lifetime history of chronic pain. And then this multiple somatic complaints. So it's not just pain. They all complain of exhaustion. Fibromyalgia overlaps dramatically with another thing you love to hear, chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, memory difficulties, sleep problems, mood problems. They have, this is really why you think they're crazy. They, they're not just sensitive to pain, they're sensitive to everything. They're sensitive to sound, noise, perfume. So how does that, how, is, how do you measure that objectively? More common in women, strong family history of chronic pain. Pain's triggered, exacerbated by stressors. And again, generally a normal physical exam. So when you put this all together, uh, that's really how to diagnose all these pain disorders. Um, the epidemiology of, of fibromyalgia and chronic widespread pain. So it's a little different, but there's been lots of wonderful epidemiologic studies over the past 15 years. And chronic widespread pain, usually not structural, affects about 10 to 15% of every population in the world. So it's a huge problem. Within that group of chronic widespread pain, fibromyalgia is the most identifiable condition. Probably most of these people fit on the continuum of fibromyalgia, chronic widespread pain. Um, another big issue is many fibromyalgia patients are not diagnosed for years. Um, and uh, again, it affects all ages. The peak age is 35 to 60, more common in women than in men. Um, that's particularly in clinical trials rather than population-based, because our bias is that this is a female condition. So controversies in fibroid, lots of controversies. Is it real? So what does that mean? Uh, I hear this all the time. Or uh, rheumatologists of my uh, age have said it's not a legitimate disorder like rheumatoid arthritis. So basically, generally, I think that means we're talking about is it physical or psychological? We're just talking about the sort of the mind-body <laughs> dualism. And if that kind of bothers us, then it's, these are very hard conditions to deal with. Can it be reliably diagnosed? So this is a no-brainer to me. This is a really easy diagnosis. None of you should have trouble making this diagnosis. It's the same thing I always say. Um, if you have a person with five years of headaches, are you really going to do imaging studies on this person? Because most people that you see with these complaints, they've had it for months or a year. So it's not lupus. It's not rheumatoid arthritis. You can all diagnose that. So it's right away it's in that ballpark. Can it be disabling? Well, you know chronic pain can be disabling. That doesn't mean they should be on disability. That's a whole other ballpark. Uh, is there any effective treatment? Well, not great, but there is treatment. Um, this is an interesting thing. Is a diagnosis helpful or harmful? I'll get back to that in a second. Why would it be harmful? Well, you medicalize symptoms that we all get. Every one of you in medical school probably had fibromyalgia for a few days with nights on call, et cetera. Um, so why, don't the, why doesn't the average person learn to deal with that? And then what's the role of primary care, rheumatology, et cetera? 
So the American College of Rheumatology has made a couple efforts to help with the diagnosis. Diagnostic criteria, by the way, whether it's lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, or fibromyalgia, are for studies. They're to give you a homogeneous population, and it's not to be used in your practice. So I hear over and over again, well, Mary had eight, not you know, 11 of 18 tender points. So I can't write fibromyalgia. That's ridiculous, of course. Um, it's, these are all gestalt. They're, they're what you know in your mind. So they're really for epidemiologic purposes. But to give some study, well, these were the first group of criteria. And it was easy to differentiate fibromyalgia from other musculoskeletal disorders, like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Not that you need, to, you need these criteria to do that anyway. And it, the original criteria, in 1990, uh, which I was one of the authors, is chronic widespread pain and a lot of tender points. So people got um, hung up on these tender points. The problem is nobody knows where these tender points are. You don't know how hard to press. And there's nothing anatomically, physiologically wrong with these areas. They just represent areas of heightened pain perception. So why did we focus so much on these tender points? It was probably somewhat of an error. So now we have new criteria which don't require a tender point exam. In fact, you don't even have to do a physical exam. I, I don't think that's a good idea, but you could apply these like you apply depression criteria. And the criteria require, these could be self-administered, the patient on the one side and the mannequin fills out pain areas. And if they have a lot of these pain areas, that's one part of it. And then they complete a lot of somatic symptoms because these diagnostic criteria uh, more understood, well, this is not just a pain disorder. The first criteria were all about pain, but we should be asking about fatigue, sleep, cognitive disturbance. So if a person has a lot of these criteria and they can fill this all out themselves, they have fibromyalgia. Now, this is why, did, why do you do a tender point exam? I like to do a tender point exam because it forces people to do a physical exam. And how do you know they don't have joint swelling inflammation unless you touch the patient? That's why mental health professionals are not comfortable diagnosing fibromyalgia, although um, our feeling is they should be. Uh, but you still need to touch a person. And I think if you, if you uh, apply the same amount of pressure to a PIP joint or the wrist, as to the lateral epicondyle, and they have much more tenderness over the lateral epicondyle, and you don't see any swelling inflammation. It makes you happier with this concept of uh, a non-articular disorder. So the diagnostic workup, this is easy. So when somebody has widespread pain for months, you should think about this, because there's very few other disorders that, that people say, doc, I hurt all over all of the time. Their physical exam basically is normal, other than if, you know, this proxy for this tenderness. Um, you should do selected laboratory testing. Um, and the biggest thing is this middle panel how comfortable are you with this idea? I know you're very comfortable, most people, with diagnosis of chronic headaches and depression nowadays, particularly in primary <laughs> care. But we're not very comfortable with these musculoskeletal pain disorders. So uh, this is very operator-clinician dependent. And the more you see these disorders and be comfortable, the more you won't send everybody to Nicole to confirm your diagnosis. Um, uh, confirm the presence of tender points, the absence of inflammation, and then you can say, ah, it's fibromyalgia. Uh, 
it's pretty much like all these conditions, a, histo a history diagnosis. So you hear, uh, I hurt all over all the time, nothing relieves it. It feels like I always have the flu. That's the most common symptom that people describe. And it gets both the pain and the exhaustion together. And then all these other non-pain symptoms, the fatigue, the sleep, the mood disturbance, they almost all meet criteria for irritable bowel, irritable bladder, uh, all those other types of functional somatic symptoms. Um, here's what you shouldn't do. Don't order an AMA. Um, the most common the most common diet, the most common sort of referral I get is a so-called false positive ANA. An ANA is a lousy screening test. 10 to 20% of healthy females in particular have positive ANA. So we still have this reflex action. I, hopefully you don't have a, a box that says room screen test or room, yeah. You, we do. Well, no, line testing is also. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, particularly in uh, this neck of the woods, right? yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so I have, a, that's another slide. Uh, it could be another whole hour talk on, on the non-entity of chronic Lyme disease. But, uh, but the, so be, be careful with tests. You should get a cetera. It's, that's fine. It's not an inflammatory disorder. You might get TSH, et cetera, but be very uh, limited. This is not a fishing expedition. There's no uh, screening test. And if you're uncomfortable with a diagnosis, send it to somebody who is. Okay, so let me spend a minute or two on these overlapping syndromes. One of the most difficult things is whether I think you should split or lump these disorders. I, I'm a lumper. Um, so if you look at all these disorders, clinically, the phenotypic characteristics are extremely similar. So most people with chronic fatigue syndrome meet criteria for fibromyalgia and vice versa. The same with IBS, with headaches, with temporomandibular joint disorder, lots of studies now on chronic pelvic pain. And uh, a problem is most people do have mood disturbances, or at least 50%, uh, and sleep disturbances. So I, I, I like to lump all these conditions together. So, you know, it's like, you know, the old, uh, you know, uh, blind uh, physicians looking at the elephant. The neurologist sees chronic headaches. The gastroenterologist diagnoses irritable bowel syndrome, ENT, or oral surgeons say TMJ. Cardiologists diagnose costochondritis. GYN says vulvodynia, and I tell them they have fibromyalgia. But it's the same elephant, it's the same animal. And I think if you look at research in any of these areas, it's all what I'm going to go over with you for a couple minutes about central pain perception. Um, again, fibromyalgia and mood disturbances. So let's deal with that. This is uh, all, all, often a big question. Um, mood disturbances in fibromyalgia or in any of these chronic pain disorders are actively present in almost half people. And it's usually depression and depression and anxiety. Um, this is particularly true, this makes sense, I think, in tertiary referral patients. So the more a individual is embedded into the medical system, the more, as you would imagine, psychosocial issues and other mood disturbances occur. So one of the things in fibromyalgia, if it takes the average person five years to get a diagnosis, maybe I feel that that, that drags them more into this depression, anxiety, psychosocial issue. There is, there is, however, increased lifetime and family history of mood disturbances in fibromyalgia and all these pain disorders versus the legitimate inflammatory disorders like RA. 
and it aggravates somewhat in families. Uh, fibromyalgia is eight times more common in family members, uh, and it does co-aggregate with mood disturbance. So if you feel, which makes sense, that there's a serotonin gene that, I'm picking on serotonin, that makes people more prone to develop pain, it makes people more prone to develop mood disturbances, that would fall into this kind of genetic predisposition. Right now, lots of genes have been looked at. There's lots of candidate genes. There's interesting study, but there's no single gene, as you know, in depression or in chronic pain. <laughs> so what about this argument? Is this a medical or psychiatric condition? So obviously, we don't want to do that, right? It's a harmful and unproductive argument. Now, maybe it's our reflex as internists to say, OK, I can turf this person to the site people if I use that dualism. But it never works, as you know. It's, it's, it's a fruitless quandary to work out what came first. And I think we just have to understand for all patients, these symptoms are real and can be disabling. If you, there's like 50 articles written on, it's called pain slash depression diet. There's really nice reviews of that. So any, I mean, they're so intimately associated clinically and in every way that I think we need to talk to people up front and then use a dual treatment approach that targets both. Sleep is also a big issue here. One of the things that fibromyalgia taught me in rheumatologists is we take a good sleep history, which we never paid much attention to. So the most common is this so-called lack of deep stage four sleep being interrupted a lot. But you know, we ask people about sleep apnea, about restless leg syndrome, about periodic limb movement. The two specialists that most commonly should see fibromyalgia are sleep specialists and mental health professionals. So I've spent a couple minutes on pathophysiology, primarily because I think there's been more good studies on uh, pathophysiology in this condition than in any central pain disorder in the last 20 years. And basically, they all point to this idea. It, it, there's no good term. Central sensitization. That's one of the terms. Um, centralized pain. And that's the leading thought about uh, these kind of conditions. And it makes us think it's, it's not peripheral pain. So let's focus on the central nervous system, the brain, and the spinal cord. And this has been particular, there's, there's many different avenues, but imaging studies have been probably the most revealing in that regard. I'll just uh, share a couple of these. And maybe this helps us pick therapeutic agents. We'll go over that. So if you look at a pain sensitivity in the general population, there's a usual bell-shaped curve. We all have this sort of volume control uh, for how our brain and spinal cord process pain. And this is set both by genetic and environmental influences. Every one of these, when you think, hear experts talk, it's always like 50-50. You know, 50% genetic, 50% environmental. So the higher the volume control setting, the more pain we experience, irregardless of nociceptive input. And fibromyalgia tends to be on the far side of that curve. And this makes sense when you talk about, well, why would sounds bother them so much? Because it's just another stimulus, just like touching them for pain. And in laboratories, if you put people in uh, and increase their sound and fibromyalgia as well as control, there's the same differences that I'm going to show you with pain studies. 
So here's one of the original functional MRI studies from Dan Klaus group and Rick Gracely in Michigan. And basically, um, the uh, fibromyalgia uh, individual compared to the control individual, with, with, with uh, the control individual, it would take about four or five times as much pressure to elicit the same degree of pain that the person feels. And on imaging studies, this is demonstrated much earlier. So the hot spots in the brain that light up with pain processing occur at a much lower level in fibromyalgia patients than the normal non-pain individual. Next, they've been looking at the neurotransmitters in the brain, obvious targets. And this is on the bottom, elevated insulaglutamate in fibromyalgia is associated with widespread pain. So not only can you see the, the hot spots, but you can actually look at targeted areas. And you can look at um, different areas, like the posterior insula compared to the anterior insula is a key target area for, for pain. And you can track this. This is something that I don't like to show patients because I think they would get worried about this, but actually you can see brain atrophy in chronic pain. So there's actually, in people who've had five years of chronic pain, the pain, their, their brain gray matter looks like they've aged 10 years or 15 years during that time. This is not just fibromyalgia, you can show this with chronic headaches and chronic low back pain. Um, now this is not, this is a functional gray matter loss, it's not a permanent loss. So it, it, it technically should be re re reversible to some degree. So uh, the bottom says, is central sensitization disease specific? And the answer is definitely no. Um, so we think about central pain in these confusing disorders like fibromyalgia or chronic lower back pain or irritable bowel because there's no obvious peripheral source. But one of the things that's been clear, and rheumatology has led the uh, way for this in the past decade, is this is very operative in osteoarthritis, in rheumatoid arthritis, in lupus. So the next time the rheumatology, uh, rheumatologist has a 50-year-old person with rheumatoid arthritis who's doing very well on methotrexate and a biologic agent, and all of a sudden she starts having severe pain all over and fatigue, the reflex shouldn't be, well, I've got to increase or change the biologic agent. The reflex should be, well, explore it. Is that really coming from inflammatory or is it a central pain disorder? Um, which of these patients has pain? Well, obviously, you're going to say the osteoarthritis person uh, on, on my left uh, with almost total joint space narrowing of one part of the joint. But actually, the other person uh, with pretty much of a normal looking knee has severe pain. Uh, there's a very significant mismatch of osteoarthritis radiologic abnormalities with degrees of pain with lots of folks. This is about 30 or 40 percent of people. And it's people with a very normal, pristine x-ray can have a lot of pain. And people with the worst x-ray imaginable have no pain whatsoever. So we need to explore this and certainly tell our orthopedic colleagues that this is something important. <clears throat> so there's a poor relationship between structural abnormalities and symptoms often. 
Osteoarthritis has been a big area of study for this for the past decade. They're just like fibromyalgia patients, they're more sensitive to experimental pain throughout their body, just like fibromyalgia patients, not just in that bad knee. Uh, we know now that osteoarthritis pain is modified in the brain and central nervous system and spinal cord like fibromyalgia. They have loss of descending analgesic activity, that's like fibromyalgia. Uh, another area has to do with periaqueductal gray. And interesting, deloxetine is now approved for use in osteoarthritis pain. Why would a SNRI, now I said it doesn't have any peripheral pain uh, aspect, have some improvement? And it's not because we're treating depression in that condition. That's been well shown. There, it, it has to do with central pain. So. Um, Let's go uh, on to treatment now. So the treatment, first of all, you have to make a diagnosis. And again, we, I think we're still a lot reluctant to say the word. Um, my, uh, some people say the F word. Um, I think we, we the, the term is terrible, fibromyalgia. It has a lot of bad connotation associated with it. But you've got to start with, with a diagnosis. That's what we need to do. Um, so you have to embrace the kind of term, as long as you explain what it means. People vary quite a bit. It, it identify the important symptom domain. Sometimes it's exhaustion. Sometimes it's sleep. Most of the time, it is widespread pain. Many times, the mood disturbances overlay everything. Um, always evaluate for comorbid medical and psychiatric disorders. And that's why I said early referral to mental health professionals who don't always embrace these disorders, sleep doctors, et cetera. Uh, assess the psychosocial stressors, level of fitness. There's a lot of obesity. BMI levels are high in fibromyalgia. That's correlated somewhat with the management, uh, other barriers to treatment. The biggest issue is these kind of conditions require, Nicole and I were just talking about, a lot of education up front. And if you can find ways to do that in your healthcare system, it, 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 it's going to be very um, uh, helpful in the long run, even financially. Uh, review the treatment options and then probably start some type of model therapy. So let's talk a little bit about the nitty gritty of, about pharmacologic management. <clears throat> So strong evidence above antidepressants. So these include tricyclics, uh, amitriptyline, usually 20 to 30 milligrams at bedtime, very low dose, cyclobenzaprine, about the same. You think of cyclobenzaprine as a muscle relaxant, right? Its structure is almost identical to amitriptyline. They work exactly the same, same side effects, et cetera. SNRIs and NSRIs, um, milnasoprine, Civella, Deloxetine, Cymbalta, are approved by the FDA for the treatment of fibromyalgia. And pregabalin, Lyrica, is approved by the FDA. So there's three FDA-approved drugs in the United States. That doesn't mean they're better than amitriptyline. That doesn't mean there's been any head-to-head -head studies or really haven't been. They cost a lot more, et cetera. Modest evidence for tramadol, it's the only uh, really analgesic that's been studied. Gabapentin, pretty much the same as, uh, as pregabalin, but there's only one study on it. Uh, that's why I put in modest. Uh, the, the SSRIs in high doses, like 40 to 80 milligrams of fluoxetine, has some pain relieving effect. Maybe that's because a norepinephrine effect uh, kicks in. 
gamma-hydroxybutyrate. There's been nice studies on it. It's not approved in the United States. It may never be because of high instances of, of abuse with it, sort of the date rape drug. Uh, and uh, even though the studies were very promising, it doesn't look like approval will be. Pramipexol in people who also have periodic limb movements or restless leg would be a good choice. There's weak evidence for a lot of these supplements. So the biggest one that I should put down on here, no evidence, as you imagine, are opioids. Uh, and there's no evidence for opioids. Uh, and there's no evidence for steroids or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Why? Because it's not an inflammatory disorder. So we shouldn't be using these. <laughs> Studies in regard to these uh, drugs that have been approved all kind of look the same. Uh, so I'll just briefly mention to them. If you look at the, uh, the, the placebo on top versus the three doses of pregabalin, this is one of the pivotal studies that got this drug approved. There's significant clinic, there, there's statistically significant improvement. However, it's not great. And I would say that if you start these medications, whatever the medicine is, the best you're going to do maybe is 30 to 40% improvement in pay. And that's with lots of lousy side effects. So these medicines are not super great, but that's true with all chronic pain disorders. <coughs> and this is a similar thing with duloxetine. Again, the difference with placebo, absolutely, it, it occurs very quickly. Notice in these studies, too, about the significant placebo effect with these studies. That's true with every chronic pain study. Um, so, you know, statistically significant, they got approved by the FDA, but they're still lacking as far as, you know, uh, clinically significant improvement a lot. So um, this is, uh, says on top, which you don't see, opioids should not be used. So we're in an opioid epidemic, right? You can't pick up the newspaper uh, about you know something happening with opioids, state-wise, national-wise, and you know and now uh, healthcare-wise. So I would say I would challenge you, and you can argue with me, but there is no evidence of efficacy of opioids in any chronic musculoskeletal pain. Any. We think there's actually an adverse impact in fibromyalgia. Why? Well, if you look at those studies, the only sort of neurotransmitter, neurohormonal system that's not sort of messed up in fibromyalgia is the opioid system. And there's some evidence that the opioids, that the fibromyalgia is really like an opioid hyperalgesia. So you're, you're sort of, you know, putting uh, um, uh, matches onto the fire, gas onto the fire here. Um, and then we know all about the current opioid epidemic. Um, Nicole just mentioned that she's used naltrexone uh, in fibromyalgia, which is an opioid antagonist, and there's some interesting studies on that. Now, I think we need to hear a lot more about that and have better you know, randomized controlled trials, but the biggest issue is they come to you on opioids. And that's where the problem is. You're off shaking your head. Uh, that's where the problem is. So uh, what you want to do as teachers is you want to tell your docs out in the community, don't put them on opioids in the first place. Um, what about non-pharmacologic management? Well, and this is where we fall short a lot. And this is where uh, a unified, centralized approach to chronic pain comes in. It's strong evidence for exercise. 
particularly cardiovascular fitness exercise, um, but any type of exercise, <clears throat> strong evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy, and particularly with education self-management. So the best approach, of course, would be a multidisciplinary chronic pain program. I don't know where those are because in Boston, at least, all those programs are run by anesthesiologists. I hope there's no anesthesiologists here to shoot me, but, but they're, they're all procedure-oriented. Um, and we need more programs like this in the future. There is some evidence for other types of uh, uh, exercise, strength training. Um, uh, the newest kid on the block is so-called transcranial electrical stimulation, uh, external uh, stimulation, then use a bit of depression. But there's lots of studies on this now in pain disorders. I think we'll hear more about it. Some evidence for these things. These are recent studies. We've done some nice studies on Tai Chi and yoga with multidisciplinary groups, and I'm very fond of those uh, types of uh, exercise program. Uh, the, the, also, the more you t let people take charge, so Tai Chi and yoga compared to tender point injection, tender point injection or acupuncture, the patient's sitting there and they're passive. The more you can make these individuals active and take a, a leading role in their chronic pain symptoms, the better. Here are some arts that I've learned over the years in fibromyalgia. I think this is true with most types of chronic pain. You've got to individualize therapy. We know that with every condition we, we take care of. Uh, um, again, let's say the exhaustion and mood dominate. I might start with an SNRI be in low dose in the morning because they're more activating, basically. Whereas if pain and sleep dominate, I might start with a so-called anti-seizure drug or a tricyclic compound at night. Um, I still like the old treatment. I, I will still, the first drug I will use almost always is amitriptyline. And I don't think it's contraindicated in the elderly. We use very low doses. We go slow. I start people on 5 or 10 milligrams at bedtime. With all these, uh, with all these drugs, uh, the, the rules start low, go slow. So the starting dose, veloxetine, really low dose, always with, with food in the morning. Pregabalin or gamma gabapentin low dose at nighttime. One problem is you, you're told to go up to this X amount of label, and you can't get to that dose with these medications frequently with side. So you stop and you try another medication. One thing I would say is maybe we should be doing more polypharmacy here. I mean, everybody does that in other fields. It makes sense to do that in this field, too. And there's some studies on doing that. So I might say, well, I uh, have somebody on 30 milligrams of duloxetine in the morning and 200 milligrams of gabapentin at night, and pick your polypharmacy that way. Always remember that non-pharmacologic treatment is as important as pharmacologic treatment. And then there's this big issue of subsets of patients. Um, I'll go back to that in a second. Um, Nicole and I were just discussing about what do you do with these people at a medical center. Well, I think the best approach to these chronic pain patients, it would make sense again, is to bring them in together in a clinical situation. So I, for, I've been doing this for 25 years. I schedule all my new fibromyalgia patients in the same half day. We do a lot with our non-physician uh, staff. And the only thing differently that I do is I sit down at the end of seeing them all, and I give them this kind of lecture. 
and um, is a group format. They need a lot of education. They, they bond frequently uh, and with one-to-one -one advice. But I mean, we should be doing this in every. The trouble is in chronic pain models, I mean, we have diabetes patient educators. We know how well this works. We don't have chronic pain patient educators. And I think we need to think about something like that in the future. Here's another um, problem with mine. You mentioned Lyme disease. Here I have chronic Lyme disease down here. So don't lose these uh, causative labels. We all want to know why we're ill, but they're, they're terrible labels. I mean, whiplash, where, where did that come from? And, and you still, you know, what, what a huge litigation problem it's become. Um, again, I probably offend physical therapists here. There's no such thing as sacroiliac dysfunction. I don't know where that came from. Sacroiliac joints don't move. I mean, we're, 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 we got to have an anatomic description. So we make them up, SI joint instability. It's crazy. And then the biggest issue is when we link these two environmental factors, the EB viral infection. That, that, you know, 15, 20 years of CFIDS organizations. They're still hung up on it. And the biggest issue still is chronic Lyme disease, which is a huge problem. Um, and again, um, you know, there are, there, are, there are people out there who, you know, are, are, I think, taking advantage of individuals for that. Sick building syndrome, I won't even get into that. <laughs> Why diagnosis condition? Well, again, the problem is still this, this issue with are you medicalizing symptoms that every human being gets? But, you know, just use the example of headaches. We've all probably had a bad headache at some time. Right? But it's appropriate for people who are severely affected to make them a headache patient. I, I, and we do that with blood pressure and everything else. So I think when you start like this, you, it's good for us. We reduce clinic visit. I think it's good for the patient only if you couple this with the right information. And then there is evidence that it, it saves healthcare costs. So this is a really busy slide, but this is a study about eight years ago from the UK. And this is all in general practice. And basically the bottom line is um, uh, on top there, if the, the number of um, um, tests that were ordered or uh, patient uh, uh, cost in general or x-rays ordered predicted if a diagnosis of fibromyalgia was not made versus um, uh, uh, observed when the diagnosis was made was greatly cut down. So making a diagnosis has a positive impact on health services research. There's going to be less doctor shopping, less invasive, costly tests, et cetera. And this is true with all these chronic pain disorders. But it's been well proven in this condition. <coughs> so what's the role of docs? So right now, uh, who should diagnose and treat this? Well, most visits in primary are to primary care physician. It's like headaches or depression. I mean, years ago, depression was mainly a psychiatric visits, right? And you know, it's, it, you can't do that anymore. And that's the way it's going to be with every chronic pain, because it's very all the millions of people with these conditions. So uh, most visits are primary care. 16% of visits in the United States are currently to rheumatology. We, the American College of Rheumatology, in our wisdom, suggest that we should be consultants. We are there for tertiary re re referral, dif difficult patients, I think for education in particular. And we should be part of a team. The problem with this team is right now, there are some physical medicine and rehab specialists who embrace this. 
Uh, not many, very few pain management experts. So how do we get more involved with them? And what is the role of the mental health profession? Mental health professionals should take much more of an active role in chronic pain than they're taking now. It's very hard to convince people of that. Um, the final kind of team then would be the primary care doc with the patient always at the center of the team with the spokes and right now rheumatology I think is, is playing a big role here but I think we need to uh, activate lots of other individuals and, uh, uh, and find innovative, innovative ways to do this, keep them out of the emergency room, hospital, et cetera. So, a couple of final thoughts. Outcomes in fibromyalgia. So, um, again, most people continue to have fibromyalgia. It does go away. One of the problems is there's no good studies of fibromyalgia or, for that matter, most chronic pain early in primary care. There was a study about 15 years ago in Australia where they took GPs uh, looked at all comers with fibromyalgia and, and surveyed the patients. One year later, half of the individuals didn't have fibromyalgia. But these were people who were seen early in primary care. So I think a lot of the times now, uh, this got, and people think, well, this never goes away. It's such a, a chronic. That's probably not true, but we don't know enough about it. Um, the duration of time, I think, is a big issue here. Subsets. So the individuals who believe firmly that infection, chronic Lyme disease, or trauma, uh, the motor vehicle accident <coughs> cause their symptoms are those who more, mainly get involved with medical legal issues or feel more victimized and they tend not to do well. The people with severe psychiatric illness obviously are going to be much of a problem. The individual ability of coping, particularly this term catastrophizing, which you hear all the time in mental health. Uh, and again, we don't know enough about primary because most studies have been from tertiary referral individuals. Um, this is a, just an interesting uh, sidelight, um, particularly of any of the surgeons in the room. This is a, a study, again, from my friends in Michigan, where they basically gave a fibromyalgia diagnostic criteria to every individual who was going to have a total hip or total knee replacement. And to make a long story short, those individuals who scored high preoperatively on the widespread pain, fatigue, et cetera, inventory, tend to do poorly and required much more opioids than those who didn't. So there's a lot of us now who believe that hey, if we could really convince spine surgeons and other surgeons to kind of have an antenna about this early on, it might help them predict individuals who will do well or not well with surgery. And again, back to this old idea about pain centers. I mean, you know, they're, they're all individualized. Now there's a spine center, cancer center, back clinic center, et cetera. Uh, <coughs> pains in orphan and medicine, 1% of the NIH budget is devoted to pain research, 4,000 pain specialists, medications, procedures um, that are reimbursed are the ones that are being, you know, touted this idea of peripheral versus central pain. So we have a long way to go, not just in fibromyalgia and all chronic pain. So my final messages, uh, uh, this I believe is, uh, well, let me say it differently. Chronic muscle pain is a real entity. It's common, whether you like the term fibromyalgia or not. 
Uh, think of fibromyalgia not as a distinct entity, but on the continuum, on the altered pain spectrum. And at a certain point, like treating high blood pressure, people become hypertensive patients. Even that word's not good, they become a fibromyalgia patient. The patients and studies have unfortunately all been from tertiary care centers. We need much more uh, analysis in primary care. Uh, certainly our hope is there is a better outcome with earlier diagnosis and treatment. I think you would all agree that all chronic pain is a slippery slope. And at a certain stage, no matter who you are, you're not gonna do well with these patients once they've reached that stage. It's very frustrating. Uh, I think the diagnosis is good for both patients and healthcare strongly against opioids in these patients, costly testing and procedures. I think this should be managed jointly with primary care and patients at the leadership with uh, other uh, specialty as being part of this. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, we have a couple minutes for questions. Uh, fibromyalgia is the most common manifestation of iron overload disease. I wonder if that's taken into consideration in the differential diagnosis and uh, lab evaluation. Uh, I'm not familiar with that that data. I mean, you're talking about hemochromatosis, or well, hemochromatosis is a, a private uh, iron overload disease, but iron overload is a public problem. There's a great article on this in uh, the current issue of Clinical Chemistry by Ellerbeck. Huh. I, I don't know. I, I wonder what the relationship is with you know iron overload and chronic pain physiologically. But it's an interesting observation. I, I'm not I'm not aware of it. I can't. Open it. Um, you made uh, several allusions, obviously, to opioids, and for those of us in primary care that have followed this with uh, our pain colleagues and rheumatologists over the years, um, there are, are a number of patients on chronic opioids in most of our practices that we either started uh, on the basis of advice or who came to us on chronic opioids. Um, are you advocating, and how would you do it, um, switching them off because I anticipate a very difficult uh, and sustained uh, uh, number of interactions. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, I had two examples of that this week. I, I mean, theoretically, yes, I, I am, but practically, it's a very difficult issue. Uh, I would say, I mean, we. I mean, I'm sure you have some people who are doing well and who are functional and not, you know, the addictive personality and, you know, and you feel very comfortable and it's helping their life and certainly shouldn't change that. But the rest, uh, you know, I think it's a real problem right now and, you know, I, I, I don't, that backlog of, of people that, you know, we found on chronic opioids for years, I'm, I'm not telling you that, you know, you need to turn this around. I think it would be very, very difficult. It would require a lot of interdisciplinary management. There are some hardliners in, in my field who say, yeah, it's our responsibility to do that. Just because we didn't put them on it or if we did, you know, the, the, the research shows this is, con you know, so go the other other way, but they don't tell you how to how, how to help with that. So I agree with you. Um, I'd like to ask about um, how we can do a better job of um, educating our patients about central pain. Um, I had a good conversation with a patient this week 
um, with chronic pain, and I spoke with, with him about the absence of, of inflammation or trauma. And his eyes opened wide. He said, my god, how come I never thought about that before? Um, I don't see anything about that in the popular literature. What are we doing to, to better educate our patients, not on a one-to-one, but, but yeah. um, in, in the magazines and Television. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, a fibromyalgia has been a nice model for that. I think that's why I like. I mean, I, I, I actually have a letter to patients before they even see me and say fibromyalgia, aka chronic widespread pain, or, or, or vice versa. I mean, it would be nice if we could get rid of the term because they, you know, people already are identified. Well, it's a muscle disease, or it's a, you know, so. Um, but even the terminology, we don't know what to do. I mean, I, I, I we need more written about it. I think. It, uh, one of the problems is pain researchers are also very divided in regard to this too, and the, the leading pain societies are now changing. The American Pain Society is just called uh, a big meeting of a bunch of us who are totally changing taxonomy of chronic pain and you know trying to get rid of these terms and make it more unified. That will be something that will be very publicly disseminated. Uh, as far as individuals, I always, as you probably did, I, like, I use the uh, analogy a lot with headaches or, or even with migraine, although some neurologists don't like me to say that, because it, people understand, well, migraine hurts me like hell up here, but it's a sexual pain disorder. So I can't just work on this part of my temple. And you know, if you use practical examples uh, in the public, I mean, when, when I say to Mrs. Smith asked me, well, what do I tell my husband or my children or my neighbors? Well, I said, well, use an example of chronic headaches because they understand that example. So that's something that I so you have, that was a great talk, a lot of very you. useful advice. Thank you. And one of the questions I had was about the titration of medications, which I think would be practically important for us. And you say start with a low dose and go slow and all that kind of stuff, but what are you, what's your end point on your titration? And uh, is it pain control? Is it sleep duration? Is it restoration of, uh, of uh, um, restoration of rest when they wake up? Great. Um, I think it again. I would individualize it. So if you if you up front say, well, this person is it's her exhaustion is what's the quality of her life versus her pain. I might try a different goal, but I still think it's function. I, I think it's still your. I mean, you know, the studies have focused as pain always as the in these studies as the you know primary way to get the uh, drug approved. Uh, Cymbalta duloxetine is the only medication that really, with the FDA, sort of got more wide sort of symptom symptomatology approval and more of a wide, you know, uh, approval for different conditions. But I think it's really your gestalt is her quality of life improving and using function, quality of life, and all these different things together. We, we don't have a good handle on what to use in practice over periods of time as your goal. But I think you have to be satisfied as far as pain goes, which is the hardest parameter. If you get a 40 to 50% improvement in pain, in any chronic pain, you're doing very well. So to tell people, and that's the thing up front, well, we're not going to eradicate your pain. We're going to help your quality of life and help you live with it. I mean, that's the model of most chronic pain. To 
follow up. Sure. When do you decide that medication is not working? I'm thinking about real practical stuff here. I think that medications aren't working primarily because of side effects. You well, how long do you give a medication oh, oh, oh. to trial before? Um, if you can, if you can get to what you think is the right dose, or um, uh, what the dose in studies have said, and they're not they're not where you want them after a month or two, you should call it quits. They're not going to get any better after. You. Yes, uh, on your chart of interdisciplinary teams, you listed every kind of doctor except infectious diseases. But we see a lot of these patients. Must be you. Yeah. We see a lot of these patients. And the reason is because of false positive testing for Lyme. And yeah. I just want to emphasize in particular, um, Lyme IgM, Western blot, is usually a false positive test. And we must see 30 of these patients a year. We try to deflect them. So again, if someone doesn't have a typical history of Lyme disease, there's a low prior probability of disease, your, your result is likely to be a false positive. That's right. And again, it's, it's like it's my ANA. It's, we shouldn't be doing Lyme as a screening test in these patients. We just shouldn't be. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's wrought with lots of things. I mean, it still happens, but that's why the ID person gets involved or I get involved. But that's not part of your treatment team. That's part of you may need you know, to call them diagnostically. Thank you very much.